0: Welcome to the Data-Driven CX podcast by Informatica. In this podcast, the fundamentals, real-life practices and impact of data-driven CX are explored in conversations with industry thought leaders and successful business leaders. I'm your host Ninka Bloom, and my guest today is Gene Cornfield, Managing Director and Experience Transformation Lead at Accenture Interactive. And I'm going to be honest; we had such an interesting conversation that we had the ability to make it two episodes. Today, episode number one, and we'll be talking about data-driven CX transition versus transformation from the perspective of Accenture being an important partner of Informatica. So welcome Jean. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. And I've in preparing I read a very interesting ebook from Accenture Growth, It Comes Down to Experience, where you point out the limited value of investment into CX and introduce BX. Can you share this point of view to the listeners?
1: Yeah, sure, Nick, and, and thanks for having me. Uh, essentially BX or business of experience is what we call the approach that companies take to drive growth most effectively and use it to outperform their more traditional CX focused peers. Uh, what we found by at least six times over the past one, three, five and seven years. So it's really experience plays a prominent role, but the lens through which we look at experience is very different. Um, so. I'd say the first thing is anchoring on a key premise, which is why experience is so important to growth. And it's because few would argue, I think, that there is one and only one thing in the world that drives growth. Customers. Now, some might say, well, sales drives growth. Well, not unless there is a customer on the other end of that sale. Others might suggest that new products drive growth. Well, not unless that new product solves a problem for which a customer is willing to pay, and others who claim innovation drives growth. Again, is that innovation solving an unmet need for customers for which they'd be willing to pay? So at the end of the day, the hypothesis or the premise is, customers are the one thing that drives growth. So why does CX fall short? For many, CX, customer experience, is just the veneer of pixels that's painted across websites and apps or ads or emails or stores or branches. And many consider CX to be the the look and feel of what their customers experience. BX takes a different approach or a different perspective. One, we don't think about experience in terms of look and feel. Experience is how customers react and feel when in pursuit of a purpose important to them. And when a company is doing a good job of enabling a customer to achieve his or her intended purpose, the customer will experience feelings like anticipation, excitement, joy, delight, confidence, peace of mind. And those are things that ultimately will impact the value that the customer delivers back to the business, because every time a customer achieves a purpose important to them, It generates value for the business, whether that value is in the form of a sale, whether it's in the form of greater satisfaction or loyalty or lifetime value. Now contrast that with, if a company is not doing a good job of enabling the customer to achieve the purpose important to them, the customer will experience feelings like confusion, frustration, exasperation, anger, or even apathy which have negative impacts on the business outcomes that we just talked about. So when we think about CX, often the company's focus is on things like customer acquisition, conversion, engagement, retention. In short, things that the company does to customers. In a BX way of working, the company's focus is on what the company can do for or with customers. And when we think about or operate in a mode of CX, We're essentially optimizing customer touchpoints to sell or support a product, and BX in short is about optimizing customers' ability to achieve their intended purpose. And again, the reason for that is not simply because it's better for customers, it is better for the business in terms of growth, profitability, differentiation, and long-term durability.
0: I love the perspective. I'm going to be honest. I've been a CX leader myself, and the last six years, I've been well building my uh, CX leadership practice. And I love how you say um, this is much more worth on growth. And but what I see also is that many people in data-driven CX really wrestle with the short-term perspective that many companies have. What's your what's your take on that? When you look at the Bx, which is much much more purpose-driven, how do you relate that? What's your vision on it?
1: Well, I think there are a couple different ways of looking at it. You know, one there is the reality that we have to deliver uh, near-term results uh, consistently, and the premise has always been that you know the only way to deliver near-term results is by focusing on the near-term. And the challenge with that is organizations get stuck in this mode. It's almost like whack-a-mole. What's the next you know need or, or issue that or opportunity that they have to chase in order to deliver those near-term results, and they're never getting out of that mode. And so the challenge is for organizations uh, and leaders to be able to operate their teams at two different speeds, Uh, one which is focused on making sure that they're delivering whatever near-term results are expected by leadership, board, shareholders, and other stakeholders, but reserving time and resources to thoughtfully figure out, and we'll talk about this, I think in a little bit more detail, but to thoughtfully figure out how to align to customer's purpose, and what are the implications for how their teams work, how they operate, what are the implications on their data and technology and operations. And while they are have some of their team focused on the near term, have part of the team focused on the longer term who are going slow in order to be able to go fast and get out of that mode of only delivering near-term results and instead get into a mode where they are still delivering near-term results and value consistently, but it's iteratively over time, not just making incremental gains from the current state, but making iterative gains toward the future state. And, you know, part of this comes down to what I often call companies being in a transition mode or a digital transition or truly being executing something that is transformational. And there's a big difference between transition and transformation. Tell me. Well, let maybe for for context, I think as long as the conversation is about data, we'll look at data in the year before the pandemic. Organizations invested $1.7 trillion in digital transformations. And 84% of CEOs said they saw little to no value in those investments. 84% of CEOs saw little to no value in $1.7 trillion. Then that's, I mean, that should be stopping anyone in their tracks in considering their transformation investments. And so the question has to be, how did so many spend so much going so wrong. Did they not pick the right technologies? Did they not have smart and capable teams? Uh, Were they stuck in a waterfall world instead of using agile? Uh, Those in my experience have not been the case, Uh, at least not in a a widespread way. And in fact, when you ask most teams that have uh, planned and executed transformational projects or programs, they would say, You know what? We did pretty much what we said we were going to do, and we pretty much delivered it on time and on budget. So high fives all around. So then how do you explain this disconnect between what the transformation teams themselves see as success and what the CEOs see as failure? It sort of reminds me of that adage, uh, the operation was a success, but the patient died. So the issue here is that most digital transformations focus on the digital part new digital technologies, Uh, in short, we can call them tool sets, and on having the right talent that knows how to use those new tools, essentially skill sets. So when, when these quote unquote transformations are focused on tool sets and skill sets, they do deliver value, usually in the form of reduced costs, increased efficiency, increased speed, and maybe if they're lucky, some incremental growth but not the level of growth that most CEOs and their boards and their shareholders care about. These digital first approaches to transformation are really essentially just applying 21st century tools to 20th century business functions. And therefore they're more transitional than they are transformational. And I'll give you a few examples in a moment, but I think that if we think about that adage and I don't know whoever who said it uh, that if you want to change what you get, you have to change what you do. And you can't change what you do until you change how you think. And if we look throughout history, the things that have been truly transformational and have seen the greatest growth focus less on new tool sets or skill sets and more on new mindsets, new ways of thinking. And the thinking that leads to transformation has most often been to focus on the unmet needs, the unarticulated needs, the purposes that customers want to achieve. So what are a few examples of that? Well, let's look back uh, at about almost 200 years uh, where we our primary mode of transportation was the horse-drawn carriage. That was the traditional mode of transportation at the time. And along comes this new technology, the steam engine, and then the combustion engine. And when that new technology was applied to the traditional carriage, we got the horseless carriage, which was, it was transitional because we know in hindsight that what was truly transformational was the automobile. But the, the horseless carriage, you, you may know it was, they, they were very expensive. They were kind of clunky. They were a luxury for the few. And what led to the the shift between the transitional horseless carriage and the transformational automobile, we can look at that famous quote from Henry Ford, where he said, if I gave people what they wanted, it would have been a faster horse. But if we peel that back a little bit, what Henry Ford recognized was customers' purpose was for faster transportation that was affordable. And that shift in mindset is what led from the transitional horseless carriage to the transformational automobile. Now, more recently, we've seen this when we had, you may remember, uh, you're younger than I am though, uh, using phone books, paper phone books, in order to find either people or, or more often local businesses. And then with the new technology, that traditional phone book was replaced with the online phone book. So now rather than using paper to search for a local business, people could search for local businesses on their screens. But the thing that led from the online phone book to the search engine was not new technology per se, of course, the algorithms were were more advanced, but it was the recognition that people aren't looking for local businesses because they want to find a local business. They need to talk to a local business because they're looking for a certain type of product or expertise or answer to a question. And What search engines enabled going back to the late 90s with with, Yahoo and Google originally, it was connecting us directly to the products or experts or answers for which we were looking, not thinking that our purpose was to find a local business. Uh, I'll give you another example, and this one actually is near and dear to me because I lived through it. And this goes is the transition from the traditional software with the new technology of the Internet, which when that new technology was applied, created this sort of clunky, horseless carriage we call software as a service. Like in the same way you'd say, well, it's a carriage, but it's horseless you'd say, well, it's, it is software, but it's delivered as a service. And what many people don't know is uh, that Steve Ballmer, who was CEO of Microsoft at the time, is the person who actually coined the term software as a service. And it was at an all hands meeting in the late nineties when Steve was saying to the rest of us at Microsoft, and I was with the company at the time, uh, our future is yes, as a software company, but it's delivering software as a service. Now, my job at that time was uh, working with one of our large telecom partners to initially piloting Microsoft's very first subscription licensing program, which we piloted with a company uh, at the time, it was Quest Communications out of Denver, Colorado, has since long been acquired, I believe, by CenturyLink. And so we did Microsoft's very first pilot of subscription licensing, which was enormously successful. But... I and and our joint team recognized that no one buys a software license because they have a burning desire to own a software license. They buy a software license because they want to deploy some sort of technology-based project to deliver some business value, and they want to do it as quickly as possible. So The idea that shifting a software license from capital expense to an operating expense, there was value there, but it was fairly moderate. What we did, recognizing that the real purpose that customers had was quickly being able to stand up a new technology environment to solve business problems as quickly and cost-efficiently as possible. We, uh, Quest at the time had these brand new data centers. So we thought, well, we can fill them with storage and servers and databases. We can uh, provide management and hosting of those systems, and we can charge customers only for the resources that they consume. Now, this was in 1999. And uh, about a year later, the dot com bubble burst, and we were in uh, in beta with this new platform. And uh, so I remember I was up in Redmond meeting with Microsoft executives, because our partner Quest had decided to pull funding for anything that wasn't core to their main telecom and internet transport business. And so the first thing that came up was this uh, subscription licensing. And the answer from Microsoft executives was, well, of course, we're going to continue funding that. That's software as a service. That's our future. And I said, okay, great. But what about our Aptimum platform? And they said, oh, Gene, what are, what's Aptimum again? Well, that's the the new platform that we developed in data centers where we would have storage and servers and hosting and management and databases and only charge customers for what they would consume. And the reaction I got was a condescending, Gene, in case no one told you, we're in the software business. We're not in the data center business or the hosting business or the database uh, management business uh, or the or the storage business. So while your little pet project is interesting, no, we're going to shut it down. That was six years before Amazon launched AWS and a full 10 years before Microsoft was able to change its mindset enough to focus on customer needs and launch Azure. So yeah. I think that a great example of, of a transition that was held back from being transformation because of mindset. And so when I hear companies prioritizing things like you know digital marketing, I can't help but hearing in my mind, horseless carriage. You're applying 21st century tools to 20th century marketing. If you think about what you know, marketing 25 years ago, if we if we sort of simplify it, you would identify a target audience, craft a message for that audience, push that message through a channel, uh, with the hope of that audience taking some action. You would, as to the best of your ability, measure the actions taken, the impact on the business, optimize, and scale. Okay, what's changed in 25 years? Well, the tools we have for targeting have gotten much better. The ways in which we can segment audiences have gotten enabled us to do so more granularly. Uh, The number of channels has exploded in terms of the number of channels through which messages get pushed toward these target audiences. And the tools for measuring results, optimizing, and scaling have gotten better. But has the practice of marketing actually changed or evolved? Or has digital marketing just meant applying 21st century tools to 20th century marketing. And so whether we're talking about digital marketing, digital sales, digital commerce, digital supply chain, virtual events, all those things that that fall into that transitional horseless carriage category, when we think about BX or business of experience, this is about instead shifting one's mindset to anchor on the customer's purpose and then aligning people and process and technology, operating models, content, operations, et cetera, to enable customers to achieve their purpose. It's about rewiring how we think and operate as a business to enable customers to achieve their purposes through the experiences that they have with our business. And then critically is using data and when possible artificial intelligence to tailor those experiences or personalize them to the individual and to use technology to do that at scale, but not to use technology to do marketing or experiences at scale. It's about using technology to be customer obsessed at scale.
0: I love that perspective. And um, for everybody well, listening to the podcast, know that the link of the great ebook that has been written about this uh, will be in the notes. So please take a look at it. Uh, when we're looking at this from transformation, but also uh, the transition part. I, while exploring you and your background, I came about to, and especially walk, looking at it, to data driven. I came about your HBR article that you wrote on KPIs on metrics, and I thought it was very interesting because you also have a different view on what to measure. Can you explain our listeners, I think, because I think it's a very, very interesting perspective on the KPIs versus the CPIs?
1: Mm, Sure. Well, you know, business KPIs are the things that our leadership and our shareholders boards measure in terms of the relative health of the company. And that's candidly the way it should be. But the disconnect comes when so many companies claim to be customer first or customer centric or customer obsessed. And the question is, how can that be true if everything that they measure is company centric? Because things like sales, revenue, growth, etc., those actually measure how customers are performing for the company. If you want to actually be authentically customer centric, and drive maximum growth, because as we said earlier, customers are the the one thing that truly drive growth, we have to start measuring the things important to customers, the outcomes that customers value. And while most of our customers don't sit behind, you know, multiple monitors with online dashboards, with data visualizations, uh, tracking how we're performing for them, customers do bring to every interaction some purpose, problem, intent, or question, an intended outcome. Our ability to measure the outcome or the customer's value and our enabling them to achieve it or how well we're enabling them to achieve it is a customer performance indicator or CPI. And the idea is, and what we've seen consistently is that the better a company performs against CPIs, again, the outcomes important to customers, the better they actually perform against KPIs, the outcomes important to the
0: business. I must be honest, being in the customer experience well, field for well, almost 10 years um, and being in, in corporate uh, for almost 27, I thought this is really a remarkable a different view on it. And I also think it's very practical. And that's what I think that really all people that are in data-driven CX should really read it and define what their CPIs are, because it really helps you make better decisions and, and to get that Change that you want because that's what, what most people, well, and, and it's also what I, I think is really great that it focuses on some parts of customer journeys that customers are in and not on the business part. And then, but also looking at the customer journey, I, I, well, within CX, the topic always comes up. Um, if you challenge the current thinking of customer journey thinking, what, what would you say from your perspective, your experience?
1: Well, this is, I think, indicative of a challenge that we have lots of times because there are certain words that get used a lot, whether it's customer journeys or innovation or disruption or transformation and any number of others that are not very well defined. And so what I've seen are a few different levels of quality and not just quality, but utility and value of customer journeys. And the least valuable are those that essentially look like sales funnels turned on their side which essentially are just they're almost like things that we want to push our customers through like livestock because you know from one stage to the other just you know move them out like you know livestock shoots in the midwestern US i don't see a lot of those anymore thankfully but i still see a few what i see much more prevalently are companies who have multiple journeys not just a journey That looks like a sales funnel turned on its side, but multiple journeys where they might say, well, this is our acquisition journey, or this is our retention journey, or this is our upsell journey. Okay, great. My question is then, which of your customers wake up with a burning desire to be acquired or retained or to be upsold? And the answer is I've not met anyone that wakes up with a purpose to be acquired, retained, upsold, or anything anything like that. So good customer journeys, the end point should be the purpose the customer is trying to achieve. That's number one. Number two, the flaw that I see with many customer journeys is that they are rigidly tied to a series of specific touch points. A customer sees this search ad, customer comes to our website, customer downloads a white paper or views a video, customer is retargeted through a display ad, or a customer receives a triggered email. And, you know, these are not journeys. These are marketing cadences and essentially scripts that no real person actually follows because customers are not paid actors that will follow our script. Customers follow their instincts, impulses, whims, quirks in the moment where they are. And so rather than having journeys that are rigidly tied to specific touch points, good journeys look at customer need points and decision points. And recognize that at a given need point, the customer could choose to try to satisfy that need for, let's say, answering a question or something about a new product area that they're exploring. They could do it on our website. They could go do a Google search. They could look at third-party sites. They could call someone at our company, they could walk into one of our stores if we have them. And the point is, we have to understand the need point at that point in a customer's journey toward the outcome that they care about and make sure that at any touch point the customer could choose, we are showing up in a relevant way to help them advance from that need point in their journey to the next. We also have to recognize that When we create journeys that are linear and we actually see what real customers do, now to the customer, each customer individually, to them, they're on a linear journey. When we look at it, we can't make sense of it because so many customers actually take very circuitous journeys toward the outcome that they care about. So we have to recognize that, yes, for um, large segments of customers, they may follow a common journey across certain need points and decision points but we recognize that other segments or archetypes have slightly different needs and so making sure that our journeys have off-ramps and on-ramps that reflect the nuances that different segments or archetypes might have are critical to our being able to design those journeys well so that they are not just linear but but multi-dimensional that can serve the, the needs and nuances of different customers. And the one sort of connecting thing I'd say is that at each of those need points or decision points, we strive to figure out what is the customer trying to do in that moment and can we measure it with a CPI and not every need point is measurable or it can be measured with a CPI. So we have to, you know, establish CPIs where we can, but that's how sort of CPIs work into journeys and the types of journeys that we see as being most usable.
0: I like that perspective. And when looking at data-driven CX and the KPIs or CPIs that often come in, what I see is that uh, customer experience professionals, they are, well, starting on this customer journey optimization or maybe new design, and they... Often find that there's not enough data, not the right data, because it's silo driven data, not customer data. But how do you, what's your vision on data driven CX in this customer journey perspective?
1: So um, there's the short answer and the, and the longer answer. You know, one is that, and I, I failed to mention that at each of these points of interaction, each of these need points where a customer interacts, how do we use data that we might have? about that customer historical data, either our first party data or data that we've acquired from second or third parties that will inform us about some of their preferences. And then how are we collecting behavioral data from different interactions most immediately preceding one that's happening at the moment in order for us to understand what is the likely purpose that the customer has at that moment and how do we use both historical data and behavioral data to ensure that we are providing the right content uh, in whatever channel they're interacting. Now, before we talk about what does that look like in a highly sophisticated way, let's just think about one of the things that I think a lot of companies get stuck on, and that is thinking that their data has to be perfect before they start really doing anything meaningful. And the reality is it doesn't have to be perfect. A recommendation is use the data you have but do it in a way using the right tools and practices so that you're building new muscles on how to deliver data-driven CX but make sure for example and you know informatica is, is probably the, the best at this is having a really good master data management tool as well as data hygiene processes and data transportation practices uh, data availability, even if it's data from a specific silo or a limited set of data, because you can expand both the amount of data that you have internally over time, and you can expand the number of external sources that you're bringing in data from, and you can increase both the volume and the variety of that data, as well as the velocity with which you're ingesting it and making it usable in as close to real time as possible. The key though is have the right tools and the right practices from the beginning based on the data you have. And as long as you're building the right muscles, you can grow sophistication over time in terms of the amount of data you're able to use, the number of places you're able to use it, and the speed with which you're able to apply it
0: in this part one of this interview we've talked about so many things but I think what I really definitely remember is his view on the two different speeds you need as a leader on uh, delivering near-term results but also to reserve time for longer term growth and I think that's very important and very a practical way to go another one that I'll remember and you probably too is that many companies are using 21st century tools on 20th century business models and you have to take a look where you're applying that well thank you for this week thank you gene and no if you want to connect to him please reach out through linkedin and his info is in the notes know that he'll be back next week and of course you want to learn more about data driven cx go to informatica.com cx and check the notes for more resources because there's so much to learn on this